Thanks, everyone, for coming out. We are doing our last lesson on our series in Acts. So we are going to be closing up not only the book of Acts, we're then therefore closing up the two-volume work, Luke and Acts, that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. So we're going to go through the final chapter in the book today. But in order for us to do that and fully appreciate what it means for Luke to be ending the book the way that he does, we are going to cover some context, get some background. So in order to to set things up for this final chapter where uh, Paul has a seemingly, in many ways, a dramatic end to the story that Luke has been telling, we got to go back several chapters in the book of Acts. And in terms of the time that has passed, it's a couple years go- that we're going back in the full narrative that Luke is telling in the book of Acts. So, so starting from uh, Acts chapter 28, which is the last chapter, if you go back a couple years in Paul's life, when he returns to Jerusalem from his what's called his third missionary journey, he comes back with a collection of money uh, that he has collected from several Gentile churches all across the Mediterranean, and he comes back to give this collection to the church in Jerusalem. And his hope is not only to be able to provide the church in Jerusalem with some aid for dire needs that they, they have in the moment and will be facing in the future, but he has this hope that this will also be a grand gesture of racial solidarity and racial reconciliation. That this is, this is money, this is sacrifices that Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ have made for their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And it's supposed to show how committed they are to each other across racial boundaries. The problem is, is that as soon as Paul comes back to Jerusalem, he experiences nothing but trouble, especially by the Jerusalem authorities. So things did not work out in a beautiful uh, story of racial harmony as he had hoped. Uh, in fact, uh, the Jerusalem authorities claim that he's an insurrectionist, that he's trying to disrupt the, the entire system that they have in Israel. And he is interrogated, he is beaten, there is an assassination plot that comes out on him, and it gets uh, out of hand enough that the Roman governor over that region uh, gets involved. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, therefore deserving a trial before he gets beaten, uh, he gets taken into custody. That's the decision of the Roman governor. And uh, he's taken into custody in Caesarea. So it's still in Israel, but it's outside of Jerusalem. So maybe things, you know, he can be protected for a little bit while they sort out the situation. And the Roman governor leaves Paul there in Caesarea in custody for a couple years. It's politically expedient for him not to take a stand on such a controversial issue uh, within a community. And so it's, it's to the governor's advantage to not really do anything about it. Now, uh, after those couple of years, there, there is a new Roman governor who is installed. And this Roman governor actually tries to weigh in on the situation. So this Roman governor listens to the authorities, listens to Paul, and this governor and Paul both come to, to learn that no matter what, if Paul does stand trial in Jerusalem, either on his way or during the trial itself, he will be killed. because of these assassination plots that are out on him. So that means whether he is assassinated or executed, illegally or legally, standing trial in Jerusalem will mean that's his end. 
And the Roman governor asks Paul, hoping that he will stand trial in Jerusalem so that the governor himself won't have to deal with Paul anymore. He asks him, do you want to stand trial in Jerusalem? And Paul says, no, I haven't done anything wrong, nothing deserving of death. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. So then the governor says, if it's Caesar you want, it's Caesar you will get. And so the rest of the entire narrative of the book of Acts takes this turn of shifting its attention to Paul in custody, traveling from Israel all the way to Rome, where, we, where he will stand trial for these charges that the Jerusalem authorities brought against him. This sets the tone for everything that Luke will focus on. And then over the next several months from this point on where, where Paul is journeying to Roman custody, this is where we encounter the shipwreck that we talked about last week. And then in uh, Acts chapter 28, you see them uh, get through the shipwreck safely and land uh, on an island. And that's where we, uh, we are in Acts chapter 28. So let's start. We'll read uh, the first section here. Uh, in Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. So for reference, this is a small island off the coast of Italy. So he's working his way up to Rome. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. In the second section after that, Luke describes more of the journey that it takes for them to continue to move up uh, Italy, the, the coast of Italy, and to get to Rome. One thing, just to, we're not going to read through it, but in this second section, one thing to highlight is that as Paul and uh, his co-travelers are working their way up, at different points, there are brothers and sisters in Jesus who come out to meet him uh, on his way up, revealing that there are communities uh, in Italy that, that are following Jesus and are eager to see Paul on the way. And then when he finally gets into Rome, members of the church in Rome come out to see him and talk to him as well. You'll recall, as a side note, a few years earlier in this chronology, so a few years before Paul is here right now, he wrote the letter to the church in Rome that we call Romans. And in that letter, he had expressed hope that he would see them someday. I don't know if he or the Romans, uh, the Roman church expected that when they saw him, he would be in custody awaiting trial before Caesar. But hey, nevertheless, that's the, that's the story uh, as it unfolds. So when he gets settled in, in house arrest in Jerusalem, or sorry, in Rome, uh, the narrative picks back up in verse 17. So, Paul, uh, so Luke says, three days later, he, Paul called together the Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, 
Although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes and they have closed their ears and they cl- have closed their eyes. Other ways they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. So as a side note, too, before we continue, uh, this is, it's also during this imprisonment that Paul writes what we call the prison letters, the prison epistles. So this is when he wrote Philippians and Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians. So this, this is where... Acts finishes a story, and if, you're, if you've been tracking with the narrative, I think the appropriate response is this, then what happened? So there are two big questions that come up when you're reading through this, this story and following the way that Luke has been uh, describing it over the last several chapters. One big question is, why does it end so abruptly? And the other one is, why does it end on such a bummer? And we will address both of those questions. Let's do the ad- abrupt ending first. So there are two major reasons that are offered among scholars for why, Paul, uh, why Luke ends this story the way that he does. Uh, one is that Luke didn't know the ending because the ending had not yet happened. So in this version uh, of framing uh, Luke's writing agenda, Paul is still awaiting trial and Acts is serving uh, partly as evidence that Paul himself could submit to Caesar in his defense. In other words, like one of the purposes of this document, the book of Acts, is so that, that Paul can have his case for why he hasn't done anything wrong available to him. So that's one idea that's put forward. The ending actually hasn't happened yet. The second idea, uh, second major theory that's put forward is that Luke knew the ending but didn't want to say it because it goes against the story that he was trying to tell. So the big uh, argument in favor of this case is that Luke had been hinting all along that Paul would get acquitted. Every time leading up to this point, whenever Paul um, has to uh, make his case in front of Roman authorities, he always gets acquitted. He gets a relatively favorable response. So the way the story has been set up, you would think that once he gets to Caesar, he'll get the same kind of response and he'll be acquitted and followers of Jesus will rejoice. Um, and so the, the way the theory goes is maybe that didn't happen. Maybe Paul either uh, stayed in prison 
or was executed, or at least did not get a favorable review by Caesar or Caesar's um, judicial arm uh, in this process. Both of those theories have their strengths and their weaknesses. The big issue is that both of those theories depend on assumptions about when and why you think the book was written that are hard to substantiate. So really it just ends up being we have some ideas that we can put forward for why the book ends this way. This book easily has the most puzzling end to any book that occurs in the New Testament. And so it has begged interpreters for centuries to try to figure out what was Luke trying to say all along and why didn't he, why didn't he tell us what happened in that trial? After all, this whole thing started when the governor said, if it's Caesar you want, it's Caesar you'll get. You would think that we're going to get some kind of closure on that. But we don't. And to help us try to make sense of why the answer is not, the outcome of that trial is not given, and how we can think about it uh, in the absence of that ending, I think it would be good to uh, revisit uh, another piece of fine uh, art that we, we can all understand in this country. And that is, of course, the Rocky uh, franchise of movies. So just uh, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, Rocky won uh, in, in the uh, original movie. The, one of the major themes that is developed is that there is this uh, champion boxer, uh, Apollo Creed, who, uh, um, you know, famous and everything, and then there's Rocky, the underdog, the unknown challenger comes out of nowhere, and they, uh, they actually have this climactic battle at the end of the movie. And spoiler alert from decades ago, uh, uh, Rocky loses that fight to Apollo Creed on a split decision, I think. And then, uh, but... For those of you who are hungry and wanting more, there was Rocky II, where Apollo Creed and Rocky had a rematch, and this time, Rocky actually wins on a split decision. So this, you know, the whole uh, thrust of Rocky II is set up to try to answer this question, which of these two is really the better fighter and was the first one a fluke, and so, uh, you know, how does it go? So in Rocky III, Rocky has to fight, not Apollo Creed, you know, that's the, don't get them mixed up, let's not be racist here. So that's Mr. T. So Rocky has to fight Mr. T in Rocky III, and in order to defeat him, he actually needs the help of Apollo Creed, who I think since then has quasi-retired. And, uh, and so Apollo Creed decides that he is going to help Rocky beat Mr. T. And uh, in order to help him out, he just wants one thing in return, and that's a big favor. And then you find out at the end of the movie that big favor after Rocky defeats the real character, his name is not Mr. T, it's uh, Clubber Lang, I think. And uh, at the end of the movie... The, the favor that Apollo Creed asked was for a rematch, a rubber match, one that would decide which of the two of them really is the, the better fighter. And so this is actually the last scene, the last frame in the Rocky Three movie in a private gym, nobody else around, just the two of them. They are going to have this fight. This is the opening punt. These are the opening punches in that fight. And the movie, that's it. It cuts to the credits. It's over. You never actually find out uh, who won that fight. And you could think, you could look at that and think, I thought that's what the point of all of these movies was, was to find out which of these is the better fighter. And now the movie cuts and it uh, doesn't tell you at all who that is. 
What that does is it causes you to think, well, maybe knowing who the better fighter is in that situation isn't the actual story that these movies are trying to tell. Maybe the actual story is not really about boxing. It's about uh, this budding bromance between Rocky and Apollo Creed. I don't know. There's lots of theories one can perform for all of that. What's, uh, what's also the case, just so you know, uh, for the sake of completeness, uh, four movies later in the movie Creed, uh, you actually do find out. Um, so Apollo Creed's son asks Rocky who won that private fight. Rocky says Apollo Creed won. So there you go. You can, now, now you actually do end up knowing the answer, which you don't get with Luke and Axe. Either way, my point is there are a lot of movies about Rocky. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't. Uh, either way, we have to talk about why uh, we don't know about the way this trial with Caesar ends. So the, the, the issue here is that uh, when you have a story like that, that pulls off before the, that final conflict, final confrontation takes place, it causes you to reevaluate what you thought the point of the story was all along. And Luke not telling us about the outcome of that trial invites that very same issue. Maybe the outcome of the trial doesn't matter. And if that's the case, then what is Luke trying to do with the ending that he provides? And in order to answer that, I think it'd be good to revisit a pattern that we have been talking about all along in this series from the very beginning of the introduction lesson that we did in the book of Acts. And that is to think about when people are commissioned in the name of Jesus to do Jesus's thing in a new area or with a new group of people, what does it look like that they're doing? So this begins for Luke in, uh, in the, the beginning, in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus, in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, preaches a sermon in his synagogue where he says, um, this, you know, that famous uh, section of Isaiah he quotes where he says, He has come to proclaim good news to the poor. He talks about setting prisoners free, sight to the blind you know, healing, uh, healing people and all of that. And then as the narrative unfolds, that's exactly what he goes about doing. What Jesus does is he is all about proclaiming the good news and healing the sick. When he commissions his 12 disciples a few chapters later in Luke, the, the phrasing is identical. He tells his disciples, go out, proclaim the good news of the kingdom and heal the sick and do good, do good for them. When he commissions a broader group in the Judean region, he commissions the, the 70, says the exact same thing. Proclaim the good news, heal the sick. When Philip is beginning to take the gospel in the book of Acts outside of the Judean region, and you begin to see the good news encountering people that aren't just Jewish, that have come from very different backgrounds, and geographically the movement is beginning to spread, you see Philip doing the same thing. These are all... These are all um, commissions that we've talked about in previous lessons. And it's the same pattern. Philip goes from town to town proclaiming the good news, and he's healing people. And now we can add one more for the sake of closure to this discussion. Paul is doing the same thing even to the very end of the book of Acts. In those two sections we read, right, when he first lands on the island of Malta, what is he doing there? The, the first thing he does is he survives a snake bite. So he has some ability to either heal himself or preserve uh, himself. So God is there um, working po the powers of healing through, through Paul. And then when he goes into Publius's town, um, he heals several people there as well. He is doing what people in Acts commissioned by Jesus have been doing all along. 
And in the closing lines of this chapter, when Paul is under house arrest, what does it say he's doing? He's proclaiming the good news with boldness to everybody who's around. Proclaiming the good news, healing the sick. Paul is doing at the very end of this story what Jesus and the 12 and the 70 and the Philip and the Paul, and they've all been doing all along, right? This is, this is their story. This is what they've been doing. And there's a, there's a continuation too. There's a further level that, that goes with this story that's not in the narrative of Luke and Acts itself, but it's, uh, it's very closely related to Acts. And that comes from a pattern that occurs in the long ending of Mark. So uh, just a very quick note on textual criticism that we just have to cover before we read the, the long ending of Mark. Um, so if you, if you have a, a good Bible, uh, then you're, it'll give you like a footnote in the closing uh, verses of the Gospel of Mark that'll say not all the manuscripts or copies that we have of the Gospel of Mark have that last section of verses. And um, we're not going to get into all the details about why that might have happened. A good theory that's put forward that's uh, widely accepted is that the original ending was lost. And then noticing that this, ending, this was a story that needed an ending, um, uh, people living just a little bit after the time of the gospel writers uh, kind of filled in the gaps uh, that they thought would make an appropriate ending to that gospel. And, um, and therefore, that, that gospel, a lot of scholars who look at it, look for internal and external evidence for those last few verses, basically to say that it looks like those last few verses that were, were added back in um, reflect a strong familiarity with the book of Acts. Like there are a lot of references in there that suggest that the community that produced the long ending of the gospel of Mark was very familiar with the kinds of stories and experiences that Luke was telling in Luke and Acts. And and this is how Luke describes the, or sorry, how Mark describes uh, um, the, uh, the gospel of Mark has the, the gospel ending. And it says, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will will get well. So this is the parallel passage to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that a lot of us are familiar with. This is the Great Commission in the Gospel of Mark. Notice some themes that we've been talking about all along, right? You will, when, when the gospel goes out into the world, you will see the good news being proclaimed. You will see, and literally, uh, the reference to snake bites, to laying on hands and healing the sick. Those are, those are very much what you see Paul doing. And it's how second century and early church, like early Christians, thought of their own mission. So this is a seamless continuation from Jesus in Nazareth all the way over to Paul in Rome to the early church, wherever they are. It is this self-understanding that to carry the Jesus movement forward means that you preach the good news and you do good works and you heal in Jesus' name. So this actually makes you consider, when you take it all together, that maybe what Luke is saying all along is that what happens with Caesar is not important. Luke's story ends with Paul where it began with Jesus, where whether the government approves or rejects, exonerates or executes, doesn't matter. We do what Jesus do. That's how Luke is ending this story. 
One thing to, uh, to help us frame this, this summary, uh, to connect it to the theme that we've been talking about all along, is that the way to describe, like in the simplest terms possible, how Luke thinks about what people do when they're commissioned on behalf of Jesus is simply to do and teach. That's how Luke describes it. And in the opening line of the book of Acts, that's how he says, or that's how he frames what everything that he's talking about in the book of Acts. He says, I'm, tell, I'm uh, continuing an account of everything that Jesus began to do and teach. So Acts is the unfolding of that doing and teaching. That's what it looks like. Now, a second question that we have to address with the, the weirdness of this ending is why such a bummer? To refresh you on, like, just, you know, make sure we're all on the same page of why it actually is such a bummer that it ends this way, is that, so th- this is the final speech that Paul gives in the book of Acts that, that Luke has, has Paul saying. Now, remember, uh, something like a quarter of the book of Acts is speeches. And some of these speeches in the book of Acts are some of the most beautiful sermons that I have ever heard. One of the, uh, Paul, uh, like in Athens, for example, has one of the most beautiful or profound sermons uh, that I have read. And what Luke is deciding to end on is this, this speech from Paul that doesn't often get described as beautiful. And so we're, uh, this is how Paul ends it. The, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people, heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would healed them. And then he says, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. You could walk away from this closing thinking that Paul was cutting his ties with his Jewish brothers and sisters, that he was saying, we're done. From here on out, I'm going to the Gentiles. They are better than you. They are better because they respond to Jesus and you don't. You could walk away thinking that. And unfortunately, many Christians throughout the centuries, starting from very, very early on, have taken that approach. By the end of the first century, the Jesus movement is almost entirely a Gentile thing. Like if you look at church history and church documents, really by the second century, it's, uh, the, the church is already forgetting its Jewish roots. And then um, and throughout the centuries, it's only become more and, uh, more, and more severe uh, at various times to the point where you could get today, uh, it can be mind-blowing for some people to even realize that Jesus was Jewish. I have been in conversations with people that understandably, it's like, it, you know, it's that moment when you realize that, that Jesus is Jewish and then all of the uh, anti-Semitism done uh, in the name of Jesus over the centuries make absolutely no sense. It is so positive that our story turned out that way. And it is really sad. And I think it's because of misunderstanding endings like the book of Acts that uh, have contributed to this kind of confusion. The problem with the idea that, you know, taking that speech to to mean that Paul is walking away and uh, closing the door on his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is that Acts itself shows Paul uh, behaving in a way totally in, inconsistently uh, with that, that narrative. What you see Paul doing in his own words and actions throughout the rest of the book is one of deep appreciation and abiding and permanent commitment to his brothers and sisters 
in the Lord who are Jewish and his brothers and sisters who don't believe in Jesus. Paul, as Acts goes out of its way to show, never stops being Jewish in any way. In Acts alone, uh, Acts shows Paul keeping the Sabbath and worshiping with his fellow Jews in synagogue and observing high holidays and having his half-Jewish co-workers circumcised and making vows and even making uh, uh, offering sacrifices in the temple. The book of Acts has him do all of those things. If it was ever trying to reveal Paul's attitude towards the Jewish people, you would think that you would not include, you not, wouldn't go out of your way to even say he was out offering sacrifices. All of these things that I just told you that Jesus was, uh, that Paul was doing, Luke has Paul doing those things after he becomes a believer in Jesus. For Paul, following Jesus never meant in any way that he had to stop being Jewish. And it never, met, it never had to mean that for any of the audiences that Paul was preaching to. We have to put Paul's speech here, then, in the context of his own deepest reflections that he offers on his hope for how this whole Jew-Gentile problem will shake out. The good thing is is that we have some of these extended reflections of Paul. So in the book of Romans, which is largely trying to address this issue of how we can make it work practically for Jewish and Gentile Christians, people from very different backgrounds, sometimes with competing interests to get along with each other, in this section, Paul expresses a, one of his most profound or deepest hopes for the Jewish people. This is what he says. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. This is how badly he holds out hope that his fellow brothers and sisters in Israel will be able to see the truth about Jesus and be unified with him in their pursuit of God's Messiah. A couple chapters later in this own section, Paul explicitly states that he has a hope that because of the weird way that this uh, ironic uh, story of God is working out, where Gentiles are coming in and the Jewish people are not, uh, are, you know, are, it's the, the message of Jesus is not largely clicking with, with the Jewish people. Uh, Paul says that he hopes that because of Gentiles coming in, experiencing the blessings of God and experiencing what it's like to be in community with Israel's Messiah, that it will cause Israel to reflect deeply on their own relationship with God and for everybody to be one beautiful, racially harmonious, Jesus-loving family of Jews and Gentiles together. He genuinely hopes that. So when you hear him saying uh, in Acts 28, this is not working, I'm going to the Gentiles, that's not his final word on the subject. What that is saying is that he's going to work on both fronts, that, and he is prepared to deal with the challenges that it takes to present the good news to people uh, from very different audiences, uh, and he's willing to adapt it and do whatever it takes so that he loses nobody in the process, his brothers and sisters in Christ or his ethnic brothers and sisters in Israel. Now, this, uh, this challenge of 
racial harmony uh, is one that uh, also is open-ended in the book of Acts, right? Uh, Luke does not uh, provide us with an ending that says, and therefore many Jews uh, believed and things worked out great and Jews and Gentile, Jew and Gentile Christians uh, had a fantastic life because we know, obviously, that that did not happen. Historically, that did not happen. Uh, even until today, you realize that this work of racial reconciliation in the name of Jesus is far from complete. And for Luke to end this, the, the narrative in Acts on a challenging note like that, Hint said another thing for us, that the work that comes with proclaiming the good news, the doing and teaching is not done. The work of ra- racial reconciliation in the name of Jesus is not done. And I know that that's not surprising for, for any of you uh, who are here regularly to hear. This is something we talk about. It's something on our minds a lot. And, and uh, now you can, you can feel, too, how much it's something that Luke wants to talk about, something that he chooses to end his narrative with. It matters to him, and it matters to Paul in his story. The, uh, you know, you could say, too, that, uh, like, I, I wish that maybe in some ways that the problem of, uh, of racial harmony uh, in the name of Jesus were as simple as getting Jewish and Gentile Christians to, to get along, but we know historically that's not the case even today. It's very hard uh, in many cases to get Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Christians to get along. It's hard to get Arab Christians and Jewish Christians to get along with each other. But really, it's even more than that, because in America, we're all Gentile Christians, and even we can't get Gentile Christians to get along with each other very well. The, the protests going on with kneeling in the NFL over the last couple of weeks really has revealed for a lot of people something that many of us have known or felt for a very long time, that even when it comes to white and black Christians in America within the same country, there can be two very different ways of looking at what it means to live out faith, live out proclaiming Jesus. Uh, this problem, too, it's, uh, I'm not going to sit around and just bash followers of Jesus on this all day as if this problem was unique to us, because it's not. Uh, for any of you who have lived in Silicon Valley for any long period of time, you realize that the, the r- problems with racial diversity and racial harmony uh, occur far beyond the, the context of churches and following Jesus. This is a problem that's uh, endemic to society as a whole, and Silicon Valley is one of the worst offenders of this. The, the interesting thing about the way racial harmony or the challenges uh, thereof work out both in, in non-Christian culture and Christian culture is that I, uh, when I think about the way Acts ends uh, and I think about um, Paul's hope that he expresses in Romans, I, I share his hope, even if it's been very rough for, for uh, millennia uh, since then. And, uh, and I, was, I wanted to figure out a way that I could convey why I'm actually hopeful about what followers of Jesus have to offer in terms of tackling this problem of racial harmony that Luke lays out. Uh, I actually thought it would be better if you heard it from somebody else, somebody who's not religious in any meaningful way. So this is Robert Putnam. He is a political scientist, one of the most well-respected and famous political scientists in the world. Uh, He's a scholar at Harvard University in the John F. Kennedy School. He's done a lot of research over over his career. Maybe you all would most likely know him from the book Bowling Alone. And so he's, he's really good at talking about how our institutions have changed over time and how that has, uh, the, the effects that it has that, you know, people don't uh, hang out 
with uh, people of different ethnicities and ages and genders as much as they used to. And, uh, and so this is an interview that he did with NPR. And the interview itself actually does not have uh, in and of itself anything to do with religion. He's actually, uh, he had at the time just, had just finished uh, a lot of work um, doing some research on the challenges associated with uh, communities that pursue uh, racial diversity. And in, uh, in discussing those results, he, you, he brings up church as an example of something. So that's, that's to frame it for you. That, that's, why, that's how this conversation goes. So let me play the clip for you in this interview. But what if that's true? What if, the, what if the unhappy fact is true, that people are more likely to go out of their way for people who are more like themselves? Well, look, I, what counts as being like yourself is not given by God. These divisions that we draw, these lines that we draw among ourselves are things that change over time. Let me give you a very specific example. Um, I'm doing some work now on religion in America. And in the course of that research on, on religion in America, which initially wasn't, didn't have anything to do with diversity, um, I've been visiting some of these very large mega churches, like, uh, like Lakewood, which is a very large church, the largest church in America, actually, down in Houston. You know, it meets in a great one of the a former basketball arena, and there, I went to one of the smaller services. There were, I think, five or six thousand people there the, the evening I went to service there. It was the most micro-integrated group I've ever been in in my life. The whole five thousand people was it was just a definition of a rainbow. There were in my pew. Well, it wasn't actually a pew because this was a basketball arena, but in my little area there, was a Hispanic couple. Um, and then me, and then a blonde, and then a Korean couple, and then an African-American couple. In, and everybody was hugging everybody and singing and so on. It's, you know, frankly, I'm a, I'm a kind of a New England uh, intellectual, and it wasn't my style of religion, but it was, it was an amazing experience. All that, hung, hugging, I, all that I, hugging made you want to hunker down, huh? <laughs> no, but what was, what was clear was these people, even though they were of different races, and... Remember, this is in a part of the country that has experienced, and still does experience, lots of segregation and not great race relations. But for that period of time, some other shared identity trumped their ethnicity. They weren't thinking of themselves sitting there as, I'm white or I'm black or I'm you know, pink or yellow or whatever. They were thinking about their relationship, with, in that case, with God. In my own personal experience, coming from somebody who was not a follower of Jesus until uh, in my late teens, I, I witnessed or I experienced what Putnam is describing here, too. Really, to this day, in my life, uh, the, the church, for all of its challenges, has by far been the, the most diverse, and I mean ethnically, uh, um, gendered, and socioeconomically. It's, it's been the most diverse group of people that I've ever shared life with. And uh, it's becoming the case uh, these days, especially in a lot of circles out here, that people are presented with fewer and fewer opportunities to really share life with people who are not like them. And I like Paul then, hold out hope that the church, precisely because it's the church, is something that can pull all of us, followers of Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus, can pull us forward in a meaningful way towards the racial harmony that Paul was seeking for when, uh, when he was uh, proclaiming the good news to his fellow Jews. Now, 
One last thing that I think we would need to talk about before we closed uh, in the book of Acts. We have been talking a lot about what it looks like to do and teach the good news. And uh, we, we've talked about you know, what it's like to heal and the work that we have of doing, what teaching is, what is the good news, what isn't it, and those kinds of things. There's another theme that goes with the good news that's in the book of Acts that we have not talked about very much, and we would have to. It'd be unfair if we closed the series and did not talk about what it looks like to respond to the good news. Because Luke, across the book of Acts, provides many images of what it looks like for people to respond. From the beginning of the book to the end, and inherent in Paul's last speech here that we covered, is the reality that hearing the, good, uh, hearing the good news of the kingdom and seeing good works of the kingdom demands a response of some kind. And I know for a lot of us, the reason that we don't talk about it is because we have come from circles, many of us, where all people did was talk about responding to the good news. That it is all about get people to you know, b- believe these facts Uh, say this prayer, and then they're saved, and that is the sum total of why we're here on earth. And we know that that's not it. We've been talking about what Luke and uh, in the Gospel of Luke and Acts shapes as the, the mission of the church. It's not just about getting people to respond. I get that. And for that reason, a lot of us are just burnt out on like, you know, uh, compelling people to respond to the good news in any way. And a lot of us uh, wonder, what does it even look like? Like, what should I even tell somebody if they ask me like, okay, if I wanted to believe in the good news, what, what should I do? What would that like? What would change about my life? What would that entail? And uh, a lot of the confusion, too, I think maybe a lot of why we shy away from this is because of what we perceive as confusion about the very things that Luke uh, describes as the response to the good news, because he talks about belief and repentance and baptism. And I know that, uh, especially when it comes to something like baptism, there are many different theories out there for why or how it works, and that alone will cause people to say, I don't know uh, what Luke meant when he was saying be baptized, and therefore I can't really think or talk about what responding to the good news looks like. A big part of that discussion, too, like the debate that has caused confusion about the relationship between believing in repentance and baptism is this whole idea, this debate about faith versus works, right? Uh, in, in a lot of circles in Christianity, um, when people talk about baptism and the role that it may or may not play in responding to the good news, it's often uh, presented in this framework of, well, we know that only things that you can do internally can save you, and nothing you can do externally can save you, because otherwise that would mean you're earning your salvation. And after all, isn't that what the Jews in the Bible were doing? They were trying to earn their salvation, and Paul was saying, no, you don't need to do anything in order to earn it, so all you have to do is believe in facts. Therefore, baptism cannot be a part of the saving response to the gospel, because baptism is a work, and we know that works don't save. We're not a works-righteous people like the Jews were. That's, that is a common narrative that is spread in, in Christian circles about baptism. None of that is accurate. Uh, 
This dichotomy of putting, like thinking of baptism in the framework of faith versus works, as if Jesus' audience, and it's in the first century Jewish context, would have drawn distinctions between what you do internally and what you do externally uh, in response to the gospel, as if those things were different or that distinction mattered. That is a Western modernist construct that was largely brought along in the era of the Protestant Reformation and onward in debates that Protestants and Catholics were having at the time about the role that various church, Catholic church practices played in one's, uh, in one's salvation. And it was during that, that era too, that it really, um, that this framework was given that, um, there's nothing physically, like nothing you could actually do to play a role in your salvation because after all, that's what the Jews did. It was during this era that, uh, that attitude really gained a foothold in, uh, like, you know, in, in many Christian circles. And it has to this day. Thankfully, there is a lot of great research in scholarship today, these days, over the last few decades that's coming out, that's really revealing all the ways in which that whole dichotomy of faith versus works and um, even like applying that dichotomy to responding to the good news, that that is not representative of the first century Jewish context. And, and scholars are beginning to provide better ways that move beyond debates like that to frame what it actually looks like to respond to the good news. So in those debates, it's often, you know, like, do you believe in salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, and all that kind of stuff. So there's a great book that, that came out uh, recently called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. It's by a Bible scholar, Matthew Bates. And um, there is, a, in the foreword of the book, there's a New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, who's a, an excellent uh, scholar, especially on the Jewish context of Jesus uh, and the early Jesus movement. And uh, here's how he summarizes um, responding to the gospel. When Jesus first called the four disciples along the Sea of Galilee, he didn't say, receive me into your heart, but follow me. When a crisis arose among his followers, he didn't say, you're safe or get your orthodoxy on, but deny yourself and take up your cross. Moreover, when he finished the greatest sermon on earth, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't say, repent and believe these things, but the one who hears the, these words of mine and does them. So too, the apostles, Paul, Peter, and John, called their listeners to a life saturated by the Spirit, a life of holiness amid suffering, and a life of living in the light of love. King Jesus summons people into a kingdom where he alone is king, and kings expect one thing from their subjects, allegiance. That is what I would say is a far more accurate way to sum up all of the different ways, all the different images that Luke provides in the book of Acts for what it looks like to respond to the gospel. It is allegiance. So believing, repenting, being baptized, calling on the name of the Lord, all different snapshots that Luke provides in the book of Acts for the way people respond to the good news. All of these things are what a pledge of allegiance to Jesus looks like in the book of Acts. And you can have questions about the precise mechanics of the role that baptism plays in that. What does repentance uh, you know, mean in all of these specific scenarios? And that's fine. That's fine. Let's talk about it. We should. But we can't ignore how important responding to the gospel is to Luke. And that's why we have to talk about it now. Repentance and baptism is how one enters Luke's story. In the first sermon that's, uh, that sets the tone for what it's going to look like to respond to the gospel in the book of Acts, Peter on the day of Pentecost tells his Jew Jewish audience after he describes, he preaches the good news about the risen Jesus. 
His audience asks, what should they do? And he says, repent and be baptized. You got questions about that? Great. Let's talk about it. But let's at least put this on the table. We need to talk about what it means to respond to the gospel and enter Luke's story. And that story really is open for everyone. Luke has gone out of his way in the book of Acts to say that. It's open for anyone to enter. For Luke, the Holy Spirit is an equal opportunity employer because the Jesus movement is far more encompassing and inclusive and beautiful and massive than we could have possibly imagined at the outset of the book of Acts. It's not just for Jerusalem. It's for the ends of the earth. It's not just for Jews. It's for all of the nations of the world. It's not just for individuals or widows or isolated groups of people here and there, but for entire families, entire households, entire communities. It's not led just by men, but by women too, and prominent women at that. It's for the well-educated and the uneducated, for the philosophers and the laborers, for the rich and the poor. The good news is not just good words that you say, but good works that you do in anticipation of the restoration of all things. All this is from the book of Acts, and this is what we're reflecting on as we close. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for sharing your story of your redeeming love and rescue for this planet and for the universe. Thank you for beginning with Jesus and permeating your love out through him. Thank you for the followers of Jesus in the early days, for everything that they did and everything that your spirit did through them and everything that we can learn through them. Thank God that you empowered Luke to write this stuff down. Thank you that we can reflect as a community forever on what it means to follow Jesus, to do his will, and to say what he said. Please help us to do what he did, to teach what he taught, and to go where he goes. And thank you for having an inviting story that always calls us to enter it. It's in your son's name we pray.